I know this is a devotional time, and uh, we, I'm not maybe as comfortable behind the pulpit, but I think that'll serve me a little better. Uh, I'm not good with a microphone, a Bible, and a computer yet, so that's a little, little more of a challenge than I want to undertake. So Merry Christmas, let me say that. Yes, and um, for all of you dads out there, uh, one of our young people wants to make sure that you're well furnished for the holiday season with a good dad joke. Because uh, I know you'll be in the midst of family, and you'll definitely want to be well prepared. And uh, so here it is. Why does Santa Claus have three gardens? Uh, those of you that know, don't say Ben, Ben, wherever he is. All right. It's so that he can ho, ho, ho. There you go. So there you go. Feel free to take that and use that in any way you feel like you need to. Um, and so that's yours. Yes. Thank you, Ben, by the way. Ben's the keeper of our dad jokes here and uh, very helpful for those of us who love and cherish those. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 2 this morning. I uh, hope you're growingly being filled with wonder in this season. This is a delightful time. Uh, uh, Christmas is tremendous and uh, kicks off a really a set of events in the calendar of our church family as we sort of build up to Easter and the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Uh, but uh, we're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 2. I want you to be ready there. Um, uh, before we start, let's go ahead and bow for a word of prayer here. Father, we delight in the first day of the week as we have the joy of bringing our emotions uh, in, in line with reality, corporately, doing this all together as we confess truth from the Bible. And uh, we, we're thankful for that. Our emotions need a break. Uh, we confess that. We're living in a world, uh, Monday through Friday through Saturday, uh, where our emotions are skewed and, and pressed and rushed and, and um, by all kinds of matters. And we confess that, but it's a particular joy to come and it's a company, confess truth, truth as it stands in heaven, truth as it really is, and we delight in the hope that we have in the person of Jesus Christ. We delight in the faith that we have, the gift and salvation, uh, to believe the Bible's truth claims regarding ourselves and all that's going on around us. Uh, and we thank you for the ability to love, Lord. We confess that apart from Jesus, we don't have that ability. And, uh, but we thank you that in Christ we have this profound capacity to be slaves of righteousness. And uh, you know we do that imperfectly, uh, but we thank you that on the first day of the week we gather to remember that. And then we think of all that in the context of Christmas. Uh, a date that was set on the calendar of heaven that was accompanied by uh, the announcements of angels. And is so profound uh, because those announcements were made to lowly shepherds. Uh, they were made to young girl and, uh, and a grandma, uh, potentially a, a woman of grandma age and these miracles and, and Jesus, how you entered into human existence is truly profound and is something we want to meditate on as a church family this morning. Pray you'd help us with that. And uh, Lord, you know there's a lot of sickness going around. We pray, Lord, that you'd encourage your people uh, help them with that today, but quicken our minds this morning, we pray. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So can I say this, that 
It's truly a gift to live in a nation that celebrates Christmas, isn't it? And that's a great joy and delight. You know, for us as a church, it's a time of reflection, isn't it? But it's more than just a time of reflection. It's a time of uh, a realignment. A realignment. A realignment, as I've mentioned already, to realities. Realities that are unseen by the human eye. You know, as men and women who are part of the church, churchmen, churchwomen, we know these realities by the gift of faith in the Bible, right? We enjoyed that when we were born again. And we're so thankful for that. And we know that the Bible perfectly informs us about these realities. However, it's true that we as the church, we struggle and we wrestle sometimes, don't we? Both corporately and individually. That struggle and wrestle is real. Um, You know, we are set intentionally by the head of our church, the Lord Jesus Christ, in a popular culture. And that often is the the situation whereby these struggles come to us. Uh, We had a wonderful um, life in the middle Christmas party, and a lot of us were giving testimony to that fact, how challenging it can be living in the spheres where God has placed us to live in, whether it's work or some challenges with family and uh, uh, just life in general. We're set in this popular culture, and it's challenging because the culture is made up of people who actively suppress the truth, right? Romans 1 tells us that. And they suppress truths that are so obvious all around them, uh, the beauties of creation. Uh, We've enjoyed at least one snowfall, and we saw the beauty of that. uh, We were driving around yesterday, and my mother-in-law was just marveling at just the the beauty of Christmas lights and trees and and the decorations. And and yet all the truth that comes to us from a, a God who loves because of how he's created, that has gotten suppressed and often gets suppressed. Um... But they also suppress the truths revealed in the Bible. And uh, we know this because the Bible tells us for sure, and our own experience corroborates that, doesn't it? Uh, we, before we were saved, we were truth suppressors. We were really good at that. And uh, now that we're born again, we're trying to get less good at that <laughs> and a little bit better at not suppressing truth, but embracing it and trying to live it out in our lives. And, and that's sort of this whole process of perhaps why we're here. So our experience corroborates that. But thankfully, can I say this? Jesus was born in that manger long ago. Uh, And he walked among us, and he knows our struggle. You know, it has been well said that the gospel accounts gives us the events related to Jesus' birth. Um, But it is the book of Philippians that gives us the significance of Christmas for the church, for you and for, for me. And you may ask, and it's a good question, Pastor, where in the world do you find Christmas in the book of Philippians? Well, that's a good question. And you have your Bibles open to Philippians, and I want to direct your attention to chapter 2. And I want to point out two simple verses. Verses 7 and 8, and I believe it's here that we find Christmas. It's here that we we want to uh, meditate a little bit. Verse 7, Paul reports... um, But emptied himself, the himself there is the Lord Jesus Christ, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant. And here's Christmas, and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance as a man. 
he humbled himself. And then we have the death of Jesus by becoming obedient to the point of death. Death on a cross. And then verse 9 and 10, uh, we, we have Easter, essentially. So we have Paul taking Christmas and making a very, very important critical point. Uh, well, several points, I would argue, for us today. Um, and we're going to look at that. The first thing I want us to see is that the incarnation of Jesus at Christmas time reminds us that life in Christ is abundant. Life in Christ is just abundant. And you say, Pastor, where do you get that? Well, let's go back to our passage. I want to back up a little bit and begin in verse number one of Philippians chapter two. And there Paul says, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete. And here Paul is reporting these rhetorical questions. And the answer to these rhetorical questions are absolutely there is. There is infinite and eternal consolation, comfort of love. There encouragement. There's infinite and eternal fellowship. Fellowship, real fellowship. Uh, the New American Standard uh, uses the capital S spirit and the Holy Spirit. Some translations you have may have a small spirit, but the point is either way, there is this wonderful uh, uh, fellowship that's the result of the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives, changing our little s spirits to be of the same kind. We could look at it that way. And uh, we have this infinitely and eternally. This is amazing. We have affection and compassion. So the first truth that Christmas teaches us is it teaches us that life in Christ is abundant. And can I say it's abundant in all the most meaningful ways? Uh, in this text, it, we looked more deeply at it. Uh, this is a time of great persecution. Uh, remember the church at Philippi had been granted the privilege of suffering for the name of Christ. Uh, it, was, it, 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 it gives peace in times of persecution. Later on, Paul's going to talk about Epaphroditus. Remember what the Philippian church's concern for him was? He was sick well nigh unto death. And he's going to report that he's doing okay. But, but, but this abundance in life ministers to us in, in times of great sickness and difficulty of health. Um, we would argue that uh, it also ministers to us this abundance uh, when we're wrestling in failure rather than success. This is an amazing abundance. And it's abundance that we possess because of Christmas. Because there is a Jesus who came in human form and exemplified and secured this abundance for the church. So that's the first simple principle. Life in Christ is abundant. The second principle that I think we have here in this passage is the incarnation of Jesus at Christmas time reminds us that unity is imperative. Unity is imperative. We have back up in, in our passage here. All of this abundance, Paul is asking, he wants, uh, he says in verse 2, make my joy complete by being of what? The same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. One purpose. We know that purpose in Paul is gospel progress. 
we want to unify around that. Unity is imperative. It, 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 we have the ability, because of Christ, to unify our minds. We can actually have the same mind. Because of Jesus, because of his coming, because of his victory at the cross and his amazing work in us, we have the ability to maintain the same kind of love for one another. This is an expectation Paul has. This is, a, this is a goal Paul gives to the church at Philippi, to have the same love. United in spirit. We have uh, here, it's a small s spirit. You'll see that as compared to the capital S spirit we read about. We, we have the ability to be united in our attitude. That's profound. And Paul's going to unpack that a little bit more here for us. Uh, in our dispositions, you know, Oh, some of us might say, well, we're just sort of melancholy. We're, we're sort of, some would say we're optimists. Some say we're pessimists. Well, all of that sort of washes away at the Christmas season. And it should. And it should wash away in the presence of the amazing wonder and reality of what Jesus did those millennia ago. And... Um, and it's amazing. So, so all of whatever we believe our personal identities to be, it sort of washes out in the person of Jesus Christ. This unity is imperative. It's the same mind, same love, united in spirit. It's intent on one purpose. Um, we enjoy, uh, hopefully, a clarity of that purpose here at Grace Church of Menor. Uh, you know, we, we appreciate the Shriners. We appreciate St. Jude's Hospital. Uh, we appreciate... Um, all kinds of folks out there that have grouped themselves together to do good social work. We appreciate that. But that's not our purpose, right? Our purpose aren't those things. Now, we might, you know, participate in those purposes individually as you're so moved and led by God to do. But our purpose is a gospel purpose. We have the joy and delight of sort of elevating to an eternal concern. That our love for people grows beyond just the here and now. It, 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 is, it is cast into eternity. Forever and ever and ever. We have the delight of that purpose. Can I argue this? Of a, of a real meaningful, significant purpose, right? That doesn't just pass on. I had the delight of, of going to my father-in-law's funeral recently. <laughs> this is just, he, he's a, the simplest of men. But he is made profound in the arc of salvation history because he had a gospel-driven purpose in life. <laughs> you know, a guy who, you know, divorced early, gets saved, marries my mother, first-generation Christian, some of you are that, all kinds of personal demons he's wrestling with all of his life, gets saved, spends all this money on his kids so they can have Christian education. And at his funeral, while the pastor's walking up to sort of share with us the, 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 the joy of my father-in-law, he gets a text. And this text is from a, a, a girl in Australia. <laughs> it's just it's amazing to me. This is the profundity of the purpose whereby we live. And she writes, she says, I am so sorry to hear of Don Wright's passing. She said, I, I'm, a, I'm, I'm one of his bus kids. And back in the day, when you were a bus driver, not only did you drive the bus, but every Saturday morning, you would go out and knock on the doors of the children's houses. 
that you picked up. So it wasn't just sort of a, you know, a Sunday morning deal. This is sort of a life commitment. And she said, I just want everybody to know that I married, a, I got saved, I married a, a saved man, and I'm a missionary in Australia because of Don Wright's work in my life as a little girl. Folks, that's the purpose that you live by. Don Wright was a simple auto electrician in Anderson, Indiana. And he is significant in the arc of salvation history because he lived with a gospel purpose. Amen. He didn't get lost in this crazy world. He loved Christmas. <laughs> every, every Christmas, he'd gather the family together and he'd be sure he'd had a devotional. And he remind us, reminded us as a family, nieces, nephews, Christmas is profound. And it's because of Christmas we live with this amazing gospel. I got a little preachy there, sorry. That was beyond devotional. I'm having a hard time keeping it in the devotional realm. <laughs> Unity is imperative. Number three, and this is important for the church to remember, self is extremely distracting. I want you to write that down. Self is distracting. That's what's most unfortunate in this whole wonderful passage about Christmas. Self shows up, as it often does, and it's very distracting. What does our passage go on to say? Same mind, same love, all these wonderful things, abundance in Christ, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. And then we have to have verse number three. Do nothing, absolutely nothing, dear church, nothing. How much is nothing, Elliot? It's zero. This is the ideal that we press our lives to. This is it. Here it is. Do nothing, do nothing. From selfishness or empty conceit. Somebody, I think, what does the King James say? Selfishness and what? Do you remember memorizing? I think it's vain glory. Do you remember that? If some of you have the King James on your hand. That's a good, that's good. It is putting weight in a place that is vain. <laughs> uh, the, the Hebrew word for vanity is, uh, Tony, what is it? It's chabel. I don't know if that's ref what's, what Paul's going for here. Maybe. You know what chabel means? It means that's all, that's what it means. It's breath, it's wind. It's inconsequential. So perhaps what Paul is saying is, remember self is inconsequential. You know, in a therapeutic age in which we live, and I'm not saying, you know, there's not importance of self-care and all that, and I appreciate that. But when it comes to Christmas, we want to be well reminded that putting glory is vain in the self. Putting weight, that's the idea of glory, is in the self. So it's not saying like, you know, Paul, it's just, it's just, you know, it's not, he's not saying it's wicked, evil, vile, per se, although maybe we could argue that when it's coming out of that old sin nature. But he's just saying, look, folks, I, you know, you got to get that you're living in, in, a, in a world dominated by death. Can, can we just understand that, church? Jesus hasn't removed that yet. So we just got a lot of issues, don't we? We do. We just do. And, and we... You know, we come together on Sundays and we try to remember, 
what we already are, and we're trying to become that. And that's just the struggle of the church. But self, just remember self, life in Christ is an abundant, unity is imperative, self is distracting, and finally this morning, Jesus' attitude is absolutely everything. Can I hear an amen? Amen. amen. And I'm going to prove that to you from the text. All right? Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility consider one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And oh, by the way, if you need a living example of what I'm talking about, because a picture is worth a thousand words, what is going to give us the true, accurate understanding of what it means to be humble, to look out for somebody else's interests more than ourselves, um, um, to, to think of people more important than ourselves, whatever that means, it has to mean what the next verse is, what Christmas gives us. And here we are now, coming down into Christmas. Jesus, Jesus. Jesus, our blessed Jesus. The, the profundity of, of, of really the section here in these verses of 5, 6, 7, 8, it's just breathtaking. You know, um, some of the deepest mysteries of, of who Christ is and what he's all about that theologians have written very thick books about. And I had to read, a, praise God, only one or two of them. But there's a ton more out there on this particular passage. It's astounding. It's astounding. Um, but we must remember that as difficult as it is to understand all the nuances of, of Christology here, we must not ever, ever miss the very, very simple application. Can I put it this way? Christmas serves as the church's great, infinite, and eternal attitude adjuster. <laughs> and can I say this? My dad had an attitude adjuster when I was growing up. I don't know if your dad did. It's probably not popular these days, but he had a belt. And man, when he started unbuckling it, you know, we would jump and duck. And my dad was a very patient man. Uh, so he, you know, he was one of those guys, just patient, 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 patient. But, you know, when he would get home at 8 o'clock after driving through the snow from the west side, he was done. Nobody at work liked him. He, everybody, hey, he was a middle manager. I don't even know if that exists anymore. Nobody was happy. Maybe wives know what it means to be a middle manager. You know, the kids aren't happy. Your husband's not happy. You're just trying to keep sanity, you know. And in those moments, Dad just would have enough with the kids. Four of us. Never did this with Katie, by the way. We're bitter about that. <laughs> but with the, the first four, yeah. And Pastor Tim remembers a little bit about that. Um, Friday nights when we'd make pizza and the, we, you know I would get anyway I won't go into all of it the point simply being aren't we thankful that Christmas is God's ordained attitude adjuster and not a belt isn't that a great delight and for those of us who are willing to have their ears opened and are willing to be taught by Christmas the true significance of Christmas uh, the church will be greatly served for another year until we come back again, because it's just like anything, it has to be maintained. And thankfully in our nation, we actually get a date on the calendar to, to do this. This is a great joy and delight. What a service to the church. Uh, a lot of churches don't have that across this world, this globe. But we do. We're thankful for that. Um, 
So it's a great attitude adjuster. In a word, this attitude adjustment is an adjustment to humility. And not just humility as we popularly understand it, but humility as is understood by the life and work of Jesus. And with this, I'll close. Lest we confuse this humility with our popular understanding of humility, Christmas demonstrates that this humility is on a completely different level. First of all, it's a humility that's missional. It's a missional humility. We understand that uh, it was a form, right? We, we read there that, that Jesus was in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but took on a different form. So humility of form is the issue here. It does not have, uh, it does have implication for physical constructs, hair, skin cells. But that is servant to a form of identity. He had to become a bond servant. He had to become a bond servant. Remember that kind of servant? That's the one that got the, the all hole in the ear and he was identified with his master forever. It's missional, it's personal. It's not grasping onto things that you believe are rightfully yours and can in fact be argued in a court of law that they're rightfully yours. You hold those things lightly as a bond servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. That little tiny babe in a manger teaches us this. Profound humility. It's missional, it's personal, it's comprehensive. It's serving each other not merely as an isolated characteristic of your personality. No, it's a way of life. Follow the, lo the line there. Form of God, bondservant, ma or man, bondservant, death, death of a cross. A way of life. A way of life. It's profound. It's missional, personal, comprehensive, and finally, it's doxological. It's wholly submitted to the will of the Father and everything. This is what we would argue is what's being empty. Jesus sets aside his, his, his personal prerogative and, and he becomes obedient to the Father in a way that's special, in a way that demonstrates the Father's amazing love for humanity. You're not called to do that. Only Jesus could do that. What you're called to do is to become wholly obedient to the will of Father and you fill it in the details. You fill in the blank. What's going on in your life? Where do you know you need to change and you need the humility to change? And you need to be wholly submitted to the will of the Father. You don't have to die on the cross for the sins of the world. <laughs> Only one person could do that. But you have to replicate. You have to replicate the doxological orientation of your life. You have to. And in progressive sanctification, that's typically in my life something new every <laughs> couple weeks. You know, operates in my relationships a lot with my wife, with my children, with our church family. There's something doxological that I have to give up, that I have to humble myself under, that I have to follow the will of the Lord. So, in conclusion... You know, disciple-making culture, we believe, is the Bible-defined culture for the New Testament local church. We know that from Matthew 28. 
As a church, we have worked hard at this culture. In terms of our corporate activity, follow one, win one, lead one, take one. Christmas is a time, however, to slow down a bit. It teaches us more of this Jesus-ordained culture for the New Testament and how it looks. That's important. Disciple-making certainly is defined by action words. We have it in our mission statement. We call, uh, uh, what are they? They're, they're uh, evangelize and equip. We certainly want to do that. But there's also a critical, a critical attribute, and that's Christ-likeness. Christmas time gives us the joy of settling down on the attribute of Christ-likeness. And it's just a beautiful thing. Christmas gives us pause to consider this critical component of our mission. Christmas teaches us that Christ-likeness means we confess the abundance we have in Christ. We don't get caught up in what popular culture is telling us about our life. No, we live in the abundance that we have in Christ. It means that joy in this life is completed when our church is progressively filled with a company of saints working hard toward unity. Unity of mind, of love, of little less spirit and purpose progressively these things becoming our reality, it never forgets that self is distracting. It always is distracting. And Jesus' attitude is everything, everything. As we think on the angelic announcements of Mary and Joseph and the tiny baby Jesus, may we slow down with Mary and the wise men. Let us join the wise men, bring our valuable gifts, seeking desperately this newborn king for sure. But may we wonder with Mary, remember how the Luke, the Luke passage in the King James, and she pondered all of these things in her heart. Let's follow Mary's example. Let's be a pondering church in this season. May we understand the true significance of these profound events in our lives personally and the impact they ought to have in our community and our church family. And uh, Merry Christmas. Sorry, I went a little long. Lord bless.